Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is December 20th of 2012, and tonight our guest is Sandra Brown, M.A. She is the CEO of the Institute for Relational Harm Reduction. She's the author of Women Who Love Psychopaths and uh, a couple other books as well. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book, Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Now, our guest is right here. We're going to bring her on. Sandra, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on your have you on the show. I've been looking through your book. It's really fascinating. Uh, oh, that's great. Um, that that book has um, just gone, you know, worldwide. I think that topic is so relevant um, to so many people as they wake up about what psychopathy is and really. Um, that it's not all that rare. Now, we see psychopaths a lot on TV shows, especially these crime dramas or sociopaths. And then I look in the DSM-4, and I don't see the term there, but I see antisocial personality disorder. And can you explain what some of these terms mean and their history, where they came from, how they're used? Well, the DSM, which is our diagnostic manual, you know, for for mental disorders, uses the term antisocial personality disorder, um, which is really a misnomer because the the characteristics of the antisocial are largely criminal. And many sociopaths and psychopaths are not, um, would not even fall under the category of antisocial unless they had been uh, arrested. So there's a lot of white-collar sociopaths and psychopaths that fly under the radar of criminality. Um, Bernie Madoff comes to mind, you know, um, until his his big endeavor, um, he wouldn't have been considered anything, um, not antisocial, uh, you know, un- until that big disclosure. So I I think that is one of the problems with the DSM is that the that so- sociopathy um, outside of criminality um, is not identified. So we're, we're going to see some changes in that in the new DSM. Um, they're still tweaking it. So exactly what how they're going to bring in the psychopathic personality. Um, is yet to be seen, but there's probably uh, way more white-collar uh, psychopaths than there are uh, convicted uh, antisocials. Yeah, it seems like one of the big differences between the psychopath and the antisocial personality is the antisocial personality usually gets caught and the psychopath usually doesn't. That, exactly. I mean, that that's really sort of the differentiation right there is who gets caught and who does not get caught. 
And so psychopaths essentially are hard to count. Um, antisocials, they get arrested or easy to count because we count them through, you know, the the jail and prison system, where white-collar psychopaths who may go on for years and years before ever getting caught or never caught um, are harder to be able to account for how many there actually are amongst us. Well, it's also very socially relative um, how societies define deviance. Um, someone like J.P. Morgan, if we start looking at the history, you know, he was going to, when the coal miners went on strike, he wanted to let everybody freeze and not, you know, settle the strike. He said, we're not going to mine any coal. I don't care if the whole East Coast freezes. Mm-hmm. But that's, but, you know, he's not, you know, some people would consider that uh, psychopathology. I think Cleckley might. Well, it the... Robert Hare, who is our you know our world leading expert in psychopathy, who has designed a lot of the testing instruments, um, differentiates those levels of, of pathology between antisocial and psychopathic based on levels of callousness. And so, um, the lower the level of empathy, conscience, guilt and the higher levels of callousness are usually the are usually the indicators. So, yes, allowing, you know, entire communities to freeze to death would be an indicator of, of high callousness. Yeah, it seems our society's taken I, I don't want to go too far off the track, but our our society has taken a shift towards uh admiration of uh more Greed and callousness, you know, there's a saying, greed is good. It's quite different from the 60s love generation. Well, uh, yeah, and there's a new book um, that came out. I can't remember the title, but but it's, you know, what's, What Psychopaths Can Teach Us. And it um, it is kind of like the corporate psychology um, that, look for and test in and rule in certain levels of psychopathy and and CEOs, um, finding that that level of competitiveness or ruthlessness to be admirable. And I'm watching as more and more books and blogs are starting to talk about exactly that sort of glorifying this aspect of psychopathy. And it's uh, concerning. Yeah, we see it um, in CEOs, also in some politicians. You know, ruthless politicians sometimes get admired, too. Uh, Well, absolutely. We'd have to probably go back a long time in world leadership's history to find a world leader that didn't show psychopathic trait, some level of psychopathic trait. Um, There's an interesting book called Political Ponderology um, that looks at exactly that, sort of the ponderizing or the the pathologizing, if you will, um, of, of the political leaders 
over the decades. And I, I think you're exactly right. We're seeing more and more of those strong traits that psychopaths are often no, noted for um, being desired in politics. Um, we see higher than normal rates of psychopathy in certain career areas, law, medicine, politics, military, law enforcement. So um, I think you're right. Well, just one one more thing before we leave the background here. I mentioned Cleckley um, in passing. I'm sure uh, most of our audience doesn't know who Cleckley is, and you, uh, why don't you tell us about Cleckley? He's a really basic research, researcher in this, I think. Yeah, um, he he was one of um, the first to write extensively about the whole psychopathic personality in the mask of sanity. And um, people can get the book. It's in the public domain now. People can download it. Um, Every researcher since then has really drawn on the work of Harvey Cleckley um, to elaborate, to, to go deeper into a lot of the psychopathic characteristics that he outlined. So it's a great primer for anyone and everyone to start there if they really want to understand more about that level of pathology. Yeah, and I think he published this in the 1940s, didn't he? Yeah, 1941, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of our, all of our, you know, modern day researchers, um, you can't read a book about, you know, psychopaths without seeing the references of Cleckley. So he's really kind of the the grandfather, if you will, of psychopathic theories. Okay. We got some background. I'm going to move on a little bit from there. Um, I want to ask a little about your history and what you first got interested in researching and how you moved on to women who love psychopaths. Well, um I came in in the door the way many people, I think, um, that get passionate about a subject do. Um, my father was murdered in 1983 um, by someone who was antisocial or psychopathic. I'm not exactly sure. And I got involved in the victim's rights movement um, in the 1980s, went back to School, got my degree, opened a trauma disorder program, and began working with uh, women coming out of domestic violence that found that the worst cases of domestic violence were often associated with partners who had certain levels of uh, disorder. Some were antisocial, some were sociopathic or psychopathic. And got interested in the traits that the women displayed that um, found them to be uh, a little unusual, actually. And um, so over the course of 20-plus years, I've been um, plugging away at 
at studying and researching women who are attracted to and tolerant of some of the most dangerous people. Well, let's pursue that. What sort of traits do these women have? Are they poorly educated or are they not so intelligent or what? What do you find? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the opposite. Um, these um, are usually women that of high socioeconomic standings, having worked in um, domestic violence shelters over the years. I found um, kind of a contrast between some of the traps in domestic violence below socioeconomic women in contrast to um, some of the traps with these women who tend to be um, high socioeconomic. Um, Our clients have been physicians, doctors, judges, uh, CEOs of major companies. And um, so they they do sort of uh, are, are contrasted against probably a more stereotyped image of um, domestic violence. But um, I, I think the uh, some of the more interesting things that we found were these really excessive sort of off-the-bell-curve um, temperament traits in these women of uh, hyper-empathy and really high levels of empathy where... Um, other people might fall sort of in the 40 to 50 percentile ranges. These women were falling in between the 80 and 95 percentiles. So I'm not sure that we have asked ourselves the question, what can too much empathy do, um, especially in violent relationships? Mm-hmm. So do you think that it's because these women are so empathetic that they are drawn to the uh, psychopathic type, or is it the other way, that they are preyed on because of their uh, strong empathy? Well, um, the the empathy coupled with, they fell into a category of having really high traits, for instance, and loyalty um, in an aspect of what we call blind trust, really high levels of compassion, empathy. Um, And so when you take all of those excessive traits, yes, that's exactly the kind of um, personality that psychopaths look for, someone who has high levels of tolerance and high levels of empathy. So it's sort of the chicken and the egg, which came first, is that, that the psychopaths targeted them because of that, um, or in their cases, did they pick someone who happened to be psychopathic, and then having these really high um, traits of tolerance and empathy, it becomes like gorilla glue, if you will, in the relationship. And so that's that's exactly sort of um, what we have been looking at. Um, which came first? Are these women attracted to something in the psychopaths or are the psychopaths targeting them because of those traits? So how did these relationships begin and what is it like to be in love with a psychopath? Um, well, they're very charming. 
Most of them are really bright. Um, actually, you know, one of the traits for psychopathy is charm, as opposed to probably the antisocials, which are a little less charming. Um, and they are very uh, intense to experience. And, and I think that level of intensity in the beginning part of the relationship, they highly pursue people in the relationship, and just the intensity of their energy, um, I think, is intriguing for people. Have you, for instance, have you ever met a psychopath, someone that you think is psychopathic? Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. What And what's their personality like? Um, the person I'm thinking of was very manipulative, um, now, this person was in an organization I was involved in, and I was actually mm-hmm. wound up in a competitive position with this person. And mm-hmm. I, I saw him very much charming the uh, top leaders of the organization and very much uh, being very nasty to uh, you know everyone else that was not in power. Mm-hmm. It kind of mm-hmm. almost almost destroyed the organization completely. Mm-hmm before uh, he finally left. Right. Well, and that those are some of those traits. The the, um, the charmingness, yet, yet manipulative, kind of the, um, the cognitive dissonance of the ability to draw people in and alienate them at the same time. And I think they, they create this whole mass... Um, confusion and chaos where they're at. And like you said, they are drawn to other people in positions of power, yet negate and degrade people, you know, beneath um, beneath them, what what they perceive as beneath them. And, um, and it's the same way in intimate relationships, that in the beginning they are very charming and forceful and powerful and interesting and highly pursue the person um, until they feel like uh, they have the person, you know, uh, sort of under their spell, if you will. Um, when we call it the, the D&D, the, the disregard and discard process where you are um, brought in um, and later, you know, disregarded and thrown away. But the intensity of the beginning part of their relationships are that people are very attracted to sort of that um, charisma that they have. Now, I know that you've been... uh much of your work is focused on treating women who have been through relationships with psychopathic Mm -hmm. men. And when you first started doing this, was there a lot out there that you could model your treatment on? Nothing. We're the first program of of its kind. Um, When I I started noticing sort of the patterns of selection in in the women, I began to wonder about those traits, those hyper-empathy, hyper-tolerant, um, hyper-loyal traits, and um, began to try to research to find out 
about that, and there was a- absolutely nothing. Um, likewise, in, in looking to try to model a program um, for these women that was not based on the basic domestic violence, power and control wheel kind of approach, there wasn't anything. And, and so this has been very much a um, researching sort of on our own uh, and developing a program out of the air, just based off of client need, um, developing it as we began to understand the relationship dynamics and the level of damage um, that these women had coming out of the relationship. Now, uh, there's a couple things going through my head at once, but I'll, I'll try to do them in order. Uh, one thing that interests me, particularly in this area, is because I deal with harm reduction for people who drink alcohol or people who mm-hmm. are involved with people who drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. We also deal with harm reduction for spouses and friends and family. And, you know, what I have basically said, you know, we know that um, a large number of People who abuse alcohol are sociopathic. They are they have antisocial personality disorder. It's not the majority. It's a, it's a minority, but it's a very substantial minority. And mm-hmm. I've just had to say, you know, if you are dealing with someone who is a substance abuser with antisocial personality disorder, you're not going to change them, and they are not going to change their drinking. Um, they have a poor success rate. Right. Part of um, our program has uh, been of of a lot of interest to uh, the addiction model. And we train mental health professionals every year. And within that, we always have addiction counselors um, that come and do the training. And actually, our model was just presented at SASH, which is the... um, for Association of uh, Studying Sexual Health for Sexual Addiction as well. And, and, and that model of, of understanding um, when the addiction um, or the drinking patterns change, um, you will often see the quality of life, a person's quality of life improve and um, a lot of their personality defects diminish over time. Um, in personality disorders, you don't see that. They have the poorest uh, um, recovery rates, the ones that keep coming back through um, different programs over and over again, whether it's addiction programs or whether it's mental health programs. You know, after two or three times, that that should be... Um, the staff's red flag to begin to look for narcissism or antisocial personality, some of those disorders that we know do very poorly in any kind of treatment. And most of them do have, you know, coexisting um, addiction problems, whether it's gambling, food, sex, drugs, alcohol, something is usually also with, with that. Yeah, that brings up another point. Um, you know, the so-called 
uh, addictive personality type, the the classical definition mm-hmm. is is you know they say it's a pathological liar and they'll steal anything, but it's really to me a description of antisocial personality disorder, and it seems to me that it's based on substance abusers who get caught and who get thrown into treatment as opposed to what you see when you look in the general public. Because when you look at people who are substance dependent in the general public, my experience is you can't tell their personality type from anybody else in the general public. Exactly. And I think um, a lot of um, those traits, that that often are associated with addiction are really associated with personality disorders. And they're too broadly stereotyped with addiction. Um, Because when when looked specifically, uh, they're much more attributable to, like what you said, the antisocial, than the addict at large. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's one third point. Uh, my friend Monica and I, I was a guest on her show last night, and we were discussing this, and I was talking about you were going to be my upcoming guest tonight. Um, and she, her show is all about making AA safer, and she sees um, AA is a really it's, – it's a place – I'm trying to think of the right terminology to put it. She sees a lot of people with sociopathy – in AA that are preying on other people there. She sees it as a ripe mm-hmm. ground for them to stalk mm-hmm. victims. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, they go anywhere there's some someone who is struggling because it's the best way, you know, to fly under the radar when someone is distracted um, with a negative event in their life. Many of the women who come into our program, you know, talk about um, having uh, gotten into these relationships during a difficult time in their life. Um, A lot of times after a uh, parent dies or a divorce or um, finishing graduate school when you're absolutely exhausted, um, and many of them talk about having met um, the sociopaths in treatment, whether it's an addiction treatment or a, a divorce support group at church, wherever. And um, I, I think that that's exactly right, that whenever someone is struggling, that becomes um, a focal point for um Sociopaths, and there are there are um, chat forms. There's a um, a website called Sociopath World, which are people who think they are likely sociopathic. They go on there and talk about their techniques, and many of them talk um, about um, targeting groups as a way of people to take advantage of. Well, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's not surprising <laughs> after you tell me, but, you know, I never would have thought of it. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, they share, they, they definitely share what works. Yeah, they pass the wealth. Yeah, the Internet would be a good 
would be the good place to do that, you know, it's all the mm-hmm. anonymity you have. Um, well, I, in online dating. Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's another place they hide. Now, are there some breakthroughs in neuroscience that tell us about how psychopaths are different from other people? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I have waited 20 years for this. I've been in the field for 25 years. And about five years into working in the field, I kept saying, there are neuroabnormalities in these people. When are they ever going to find them? And um, Dr. Kent Keel, who is uh, uh, part of the Mind Research Network, was funded um, to have a mobile MRI van that went to the prisons and um, did MRI imaging on psychopaths' brains to be able to establish a, a database of um, normal brains and psychopathic brains to be able to see regional differences you know, within the brain. And there are very few areas of the brain that are not impacted. Um, areas you know, related to that pathological line that you were talking about, which is a frontal lobe problem, um, the difficulty from... Uh, of learning from experience why they keep doing the same thing over and over again, another frontal lobe area, limbic regions. I mean, um, when the women come into the program, we actually have a neuroscience class that they go through, and um, we show them a picture of the brain and and say, um, "Here's, here's the good news. Anything that's not marked in red is not affected. And there's like two areas that are not. <laughs> <You know, it's laughs> our, <laughs> our our little sarcastic remark, but neuroscience has really helped us understand that this is not just willful behavior. This is not something that cognitive behavioral therapy is going to do something for. I mean, you can't you can't create a conscience, and conscience is what makes us you know, gives us our own humanity and puts a break on that behavior is our ability to be reflective and have insight. And so the the impacted brain um, with psychopaths is so tremendously impacted that when women come in with the wishful thinking, um, you know, that, that uh, going to therapy is going to help them. Um, the neuroscience has been the number one strength in our program for the women to sort of to, to uh, move past that wishful thinking part. So we're really grateful for the neuroscience. And, and it's helped to for us... Um, as researchers to to take that a step further, not just with the psychopathic brain, but like what you have been talking about with the antisocial brain. Um, and I know there's been Dr. Amen, he's done, you know, research on, on the addictive brain and 
you know, the, all that MRI um, neuroscience is beginning to take us into, um, you know, uh, other areas as well, such as the antisocial. Oh, has anyone uh, tried to look at the difference between a psychopathic brain and an antisocial brain? Well, they, they're just now starting to do that. I, the first step was they started at the high end of that continuum. You know, psychopaths are, are more dangerous and, um, you know, they're held hostage there <laughs> in prison. So it, it's much easier to, uh, to be able to do that. So they started with the psychopathic brain. Yes, now they have done some with antisocial brain, um, showing similar affected brain regions. We've also done it with um, borderline personality disorder um, and now narcissism. So we know that whole cluster, those are called cluster B disorders, borderline narcissist, antisocial, and then psychopathic is not part of that, but we want them in there. Um, all have affected areas, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, which I, I think is really helpful for people who are trying um, to separate from these relationships, that they understand um, what can and cannot happen. We're talking about hardwiring problems here and not just emotional deficits. But then um, borderline personality disorder, I want to talk about that a little bit, because mm-hmm. I think that's that's been shown to be much more treatable. Uh, Marsha Linehan, I believe, developed dialectical behavioral therapy for yeah. that has had quite a bit of success. Well, I ran DBT groups for 10 years, and um, when they are motivated to use what they have learned. Part of the affected um, brain regions in cluster Bs has a lot to do with the inability to sustain positive and consistent change when they're not motivated to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, for a long time we thought that was willfulness. Um, And so... um, more and more of the neuroscience, just even in the last couple of years, has um, begun to show us parts of the brain that really are um, impacted. The other issue about DBT is how long people are committed to staying in treatment for that. Um, So we found DBT to be really effective during the time period that people stayed in treatment. But, you know, when they came out of treatment, not so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it might be a, a lifelong process of ongoing DBT self-help. I know I've talked to uh, mm-hmm. a couple people who uh, were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. who have... I mean, their lives have greatly improved through the DBT, mm-hmm. and they continue to practice it because they feel much better. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And and that's the key is whether or not they are able to sustain positive change. And so 
um, just like anything else, uh, use it or lose it. And for those that continue to practice, they, they do have some um, some consistent improvement. Um, but again, um, the, the neuroscience stuff. I, I was um, just blogging about this today about some of the new neuroscience stuff that's coming out about uh, about borderline, and that's that's not a bad thing. The more that we begin to understand the the parts of the, the brain that are affected, um, the more we can try to help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back a little bit to uh, what we were talking about earlier um, with psych- psychopaths and antisocial personality mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question of what is criminal behavior, what is criminal insanity, what is not guilty by reason of insanity, I mean, we can see a case, well, there's two famous cases of in Wisconsin of cannibals. That the more recent one, which is well known, is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, mm-hmm. who, and he was judged sane, guilty, and executed, or or did he, or was he killed in prison? But he was sentenced to to death. Mm-hmm. A- and then earlier in the 1950s, there was Ed Gein, who they based several movies on him, although he was he didn't get much press, but uh, mm-hmm. they considered him. Insane, but in those days they locked they locked you up and they threw the key away. They didn't let you back out. Mm-hmm. They didn't consider you treatable. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, my opinion is that you know someone that does these things, they are crazy, and that's what you need to do is lock them up and throw the key away. There's, this is not treatable insanity, but it's not it's not sane behavior. Um. No, and, and there is a difference between, you know, what courts, you know, often label criminal insanity and, and what mental health might call it. Um, I mean, to me, there is no doubt that, that for instance, Jeffrey Dahmer was, was psychopathic. Um, but psychopathy is unless they're delusional on top of the psychopathy during the act, they are often declared to be sane in um, that uh, and fit to stand trial. And um, I think that that's that's always been one of the uh, struggles between mental health and, and law and we're going to see we're going to see even more of that now um with the onset of what we're finding with neuroscience that more and more of the neuroscience aspects are being argued um both on the prosecution side and also on the defense side in in fact there's um there are new areas Specialties in law called neuro law. There's new journals called neuroethics, and um, I was speaking to a group of judges last year and was talking about 
we what we are finding in neuroscience about the antisocial brain and the psychopathic brain and the parts of the brain that are damaged and that this stuff is going to start being argued. So get ready uh, um, mm-hmm. on, both, on both sides. And it, it's going to be fascinating to see how this is getting played out. The criminal defense attorneys say, you know, it's he's hardwired. Here's the picture of the brain, the same picture I give to the women in, you know, that come into our program. That, um, and they, you know, they show the judge all the areas of the brain that are affected and say he's hardwired. It's not his fault. And then the prosecutor comes in and says he's hardwired. You should throw away the key. He can't change. So it's, um, I think we're seeing more of that now based on, on neuroscience more than what it used to be based on back in the 50s when they called it things like criminal insanity. Um, so it's, all, it's a fascinating time to see all the different areas that, that neuroscience is starting to impact the ethics of law treatment diagnosis. Yeah, I think juries are often afraid that, um, you know, if they say not guilty guilty by reason of insanity, you know, they're going to go to mental hospital for a couple of years and they'll let them out and they'll do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, start eating eating some more people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, now that more and more of the neuroscience is being um, used as evidence-based approaches, you know, what's going to happen? Well, this brings us back to another point because I was talking about, you know, AA could be a stalking ground, but, you know, there's a lot of judges uh, recently in recent years that have been sentencing uh, sex offenders to go to 12-step meetings and to actually go to AA meetings. And you know, this is one of the things that my friend has had a big outcry against. And this is not this is not the place to sentence people to go. Yeah. Thanks a lot, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sentencing them to that. Well, I, part of, of what the... The institute does is not only do we help with you know the survivors, we have a whole survivor support program, but the other part of what we do is called public pathology education. And one of um, the groups that we are targeting over the next couple of years is uh, judicial, and that we have been training judges uh, about who can and the types of disorders that have low treatment outcomes. And I think the the areas of pedophiles that we have come a long way. We have finally, you know, gotten um, some insight into the unchangeability of their behaviors, that very few of them have really great treatment outcomes, that the risk level for repeat behaviors is really high, Um, which is why we have offender databases. But 
I think the judges compartmentalize that, that their inability to change has more to do just with, with the sexual um, deviancy in acting out than it does on their whole behavior. So, you know, I, my guess would be that their treatment outcomes in addiction are as low as their treatment outcomes are in their deviancy. So sending them to, uh, telling them to go to an addiction program um, is not only fruitless, but it's putting other people at risk. Yeah, it's really interesting, some of these cases. Um, the uh, the person being sentenced has not been diagnosed with an addiction disorder. They haven't uh, they've just been in, they've been diagnosed as a sex offender, or they've been mm-hmm. classified as a sex offender, and the judge, who is probably an AA member, says, oh, "Well, send them to AA; it will cure them of their mm-hmm. being a sex offender." Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we have such a, a long way to go, and, and again, teaching about which disorders. Um, I have decent outcomes in which don't, and then coming up with, with solutions about what do we do with really low outcomes with the antisocial types whose whose behavioral changes are measured in millimeters. Um, and when I was speaking with the um, at the judicial conference, you know, um, one of the judges said we would have absolute public panic if we acknowledged that taking certain groups of these antisocials and putting them through matter intervention is fairly ineffective for this group. Putting them through, or you know, sex offenders who are likely to have antisocial aspects or psychopathic aspects, putting them through treatment that does very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so what do we do? Um, she was saying, you know, as a judge, we, we we can't disclose that treatment is ineffective. Well, you know, here's the thing. We have a huge prison populace in the United States and the vast majority their only crime is drug use um, which shouldn't be criminal behavior period and there's no reason to lock people up for using drugs um, we could you know really reduce the prison population if we got rid of the drug laws and you know we could lock up some people that really need to be locked up right right I agree. So, um, in in order to switch things around, what we're doing is a whole overhaul of many systems, um, the judicial system, the social service system, um, the mental health system, uh, for people to understand and be able to focus on those clusters of disorders that are the most dangerous society um, and um, relationally, and we're not there yet. 
No, we we I don't even know if we're going in the right direction yet uh, as a society at least as as a as our our political and government our government. I don't know if our government's going in the right direction, but that's a whole other issue. Um I'm going to go back to some of the things in your book cuz I really want to get the answer to this question. Do psychopaths have attachment and bonding? Uh, um, okay, I mean, it's a quiz for you. What do you think? Um, I believe they do, okay. but I don't think it's normal attachment and bonding. Okay, so I'll give you a hint. Of those two things, it's only one of those. So which one do they do? Do they attach or do they bond? Oh, God, I would say attach. There you go. Exactly. So people without that level of pathology actually have, actually bond. Um, Attachment is a different process that reflects different depths. And what ends up happening in the relationships is that... um, People get in a relationship with a psychopath. It's very intense to experience, and the intensity has a lot to do with, with just the disorder being intense. Um, and that is often misread as kind of intensity of the relationship dynamic, as in like a soulmate experience. Women talk about that. Um, and there's usually... Um, during the early parts of the relationship, that level of intensity, she's going through a normal bonding process during that, and their level um, is much more shallower and uh, known more as attachment than bonding, which is part of the reason that at the end of the relationship, you know, he's with someone two or three days later, there's not the big emotional upheaval for psychopaths living in relationships as, as normal people have. Um, so, no, they don't bond. Um, they have surface levels attachment. People are objects. So, you know, um, relationships are replaced the way they replace a recliner. And um, it's just tragic. So that brings us to an important question, and I want to cover a couple topics before we finish up here. And one is, how do women get out of these relationships? Um, and I, I'm sure that uh, there are cases where the woman is psychopathic and the man is the victim, but it's uh, mm-hmm. right. the vast majority are the other way around, I take it. Right. Yeah. Um, they're definitely... Um Psychopathy and the antisocial is a mental health disorder. It is not a gender disorder, um, so it can happen to to either. We mostly work with women, which is why we couch this in these terms. But um, if women recognize that the relationship they are in is that the partner meets sort of the criteria, and they can go online and Google narcissism or antisocial personality or psychopathy, 
if they find that their partner falls much more under those kinds of behaviors, um, just to be aware that these are the people that, you know, go from zero to rage in nanoseconds. This is the, the tragic breakups that we, as mental health people, always worry about. The O.J. Simpson events of never going away, of stalking. And so these particular ones really need exit strategies, that this is the time when these guys get um, cranked up, they're losing the, the control over the object that they have controlled for so long, which, which is her. And um, they don't go away. They're, they're boomerangs. Um, and so these cases, more than anyone else, really need to get with um, qualified people to help them develop an exit, a safe exit strategy. And by no means, ever, ever, ever um, let them know that you are leaving. Um, for people who have, who are afraid that leaving is going to injure, um, end up in a serious injury coma, whether they might go missing or are even killed in that process, heaven forbid, of leaving. Um, I want to recommend that they go to the website documentheabuse.com, which is a brand-new process that helps women um, create a digital uh, diary of what they have been experiencing in case something happens to them, the prosecution can still go forward. This was created um, from the Drew Peterson case um, about what happened to Kathleen Sago and and what we assume has happened to Stacey Peterson. And um, we've even had success in having women complete what we call the evidentiary abuse affidavit process um, and um, when, when she has done that and successfully left the relationship when um, he is notified that there is this visualized format um, that has been turned over to law enforcement and other safe persons in case of injury or demise to herself, it has prevented repeat domestic violence. Most of these guys do this because they think there is no evidence for what they have done or what they are going to do. So if, um, I highly encourage anyone who is really worried to go go by the website and take a look at documentthebuse.com. Do you also treat women who have uh, been abandoned by their sociopathic partner who's gone on to a, a new partner? Well, I, that's usually the, the inevitable outcome uh, um, is um, I would say most of the relationships are when the woman has contacted us after she has discovered multiple other partners or he has had moved on. 
So absolutely. Um, that's the majority, I think, of the cases. And what are some of the things that you do to treat the women who have left uh, these psychopathic relationships? Well, a big portion of that, I would say a third of it, it is them understanding psychopathy. Um, what was wrong with him, the relationship dynamics that played out, and what he could never bring to the relationship. And a big, is the neuroscience of the brain, all of that. So there's a big portion of pathology education that happens. The second piece of, of it is symptom management. The women come in, um, 60 to 70% of them will have um, post-traumatic stress disorder um, from from the um, either violence they experience, a lot of them have not even had violence, but sort of gaslighting kinds of experiences with them. So we do a lot of um, symptom management for intrusive thoughts, um, cognitive dissonance, which is sort of the ping-ponging between he's good, he's bad, um, so symptom management, and then the last set, segment is about um, rebuilding their lives and recovering and what to look for um, next time to try to avoid repeating. Okay, this has been a really fascinating show that we've had tonight, but we're going to have to close up because we're running out of time. We've been here almost an hour. Before we go, though, tell us, uh, what are your books and what is your website? Um, wrote, wrote How to Spot a Dangerous Man Before You Get, get Involved, and also Women Who Love Psychopaths, and a counseling book called Counseling Victims of Violence. People can um, visit our website at saferelationshipsmagazine.com. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Sandra Brown. Thank you so much, Ken. And everyone, uh, stay tuned. Uh, tomorrow, we're coming back with another show tomorrow. Uh, because my guest had some scheduling difficulties, couldn't make the Thursday, it will be Addie Jaffe, who's a professor at the uh, University of California, talking about addiction. And uh, everyone, thank you for listening, and good night.